The source of the speeches I use here on the Choice Voice podcast comes from a list of the top 100 speeches. This list is compiled by researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Texas A&M University, among other places. It reflects the opinions of 137 leading scholars of public address. My choice of the speeches you hear here should not be construed to reflect or promote any point of view. They are simply considered great speeches. Welcome back to our conclusion of this week's speech transcript from William Jennings Bryan. There can be no doubt that we accepted and utilized the services of the Filipinos, and that when we did so, we had full knowledge that they were fighting for their own independence. And I submit that history furnishes no example of turpitude baser than ours if we now substitute our yoke for the Spanish yoke. Let us consider briefly the reasons which have been given in support of an imperialistic policy. Some say that it is our duty to hold the Philippine Islands, but duty is not an argument, it is a conclusion. To ascertain what our duty is in any emergency, we must apply well-settled and generally accepted principles. It is our duty to avoid stealing, no matter whether the thing to be stolen is of great or little value. It is our duty to avoid killing a human being, no matter where the human being lives or to what race or class he belongs. Everyone recognizes the obligation imposed upon individuals to observe both the human and the moral law. But as some deny the application of those laws to nations, it may not be out of place to quote the opinions of others. Jefferson, than whom there is no higher political authority, said, I know of but one code of morality for men, whether acting singly or collectively. Franklin, whose learning, wisdom, and virtue are a part of the priceless legacy bequeathed to us from the revolutionary days, expressed the same idea in even stronger language when he said, Justice is strictly due between neighbor nations as between neighbor citizens. A highwayman is as much a robber when he plunders in a gang as when single, and the nation that makes an unjust war is only a great gang. Many may dare to do in crowds what they would not dare to do as individuals, but the moral character of an act is not determined by the number of those who join it. Force can defend a right, but force has never yet created a right. If it was true, as declared in the resolutions of intervention, that the Cubans are and of right ought to be free and independent, language taken from the Declaration of Independence. It is equally true that the Filipinos are and of right ought to be free and independent. The right of the Cubans to freedom was not based upon their proximity to the United States, nor upon the language which they spoke, nor yet upon the race or races to which they belonged. Congress, by a practically unanimous vote, declared that the principles enunciated at Philadelphia in 1776 were still alive and applicable to the Cubans. Who will draw a line between the natural rights of the Cubans and the Filipinos? Who will say that the former has a right to liberty and that the latter has no rights which we are bound to respect? And if the Filipinos are and of right ought to be free and independent, what right have we to force our government upon them without their consent? Before our duty can be ascertained, their rights must be determined. 
And when their rights are once determined, it is as much our duty to respect those rights as it was the duty of Spain to respect the rights of the people of Cuba or the duty of England to respect the rights of the American colonists. Rights never conflict. Duties never clash. Can it be our duty to usurp political rights which belong to others? Can it be our duty to kill those who, following the example of our forefathers, love liberty well enough to fight for it? Some poet has described the terror which overcame a soldier who in the midst of the battle discovered that he had slain his brother. It is written, All ye are brethren. Let us hope for the coming day when human life, which when once destroyed cannot be restored, will be so sacred that it will never be taken except when necessary to punish a crime already committed or to prevent a crime about to be committed. It is said that we have assumed before the world obligations which make it necessary for us to permanently maintain a government in the Philippine Islands. I reply first that the highest obligation of this nation is to be true to itself. No obligation to any particular nations or to all the nations combined can require the abandonment of our theory of government and the substitution of doctrines against which our whole national life has been a protest. And second, that our obligation to the Filipinos who inhabit the islands is greater than any obligation which we can owe to foreigners who have a temporary residence in the Philippines or desire to trade there. It is argued by some that the Filipinos are incapable of self-government, and that, therefore, we owe it to the world to take control of them. Admiral Dewey, in an official report to the Navy Department, declared the Filipinos more capable of self-government than the Cubans, and said that he based his opinion upon a knowledge of both races. But I will not rest the case upon the relative advancement of the Filipinos. Henry Clay, in defending the right of the people of South America to self-government, said, It is the doctrine of thrones that man is too ignorant to govern himself. Their partisans assert his incapacity in reference to all nations. If they cannot command universal assent to the proposition, it is then demanded to particular nations, and our pride and our presumption too often make converts of us. I contend that it is to arraign the disposition of Providence himself to suppose that he has created beings incapable of governing themselves, and to be trampled on by kings. Self-government is the natural government of man. Clay was right. There are degrees of proficiency in the art of self-government, but it is a reflection upon the Creator to say that He denied to any people the capacity for self-government. Once admit that some people are capable of self-government and that others are not, and that the capable people have a right to seize upon and govern the incapable, and you make force, brute force, the only foundation of government and invite the reign of a despot. I am not willing to believe that an all-wise and an all-loving God created the Filipinos and then left them thousands of years helpless until the islands attracted the attention of European nations. Republicans ask, Shall we haul down the flag that floats over our dead in the Philippines? The same question might have been asked when the American flag floated over Chapultepec and waved over the dead who fell there. But the tourist who visits the city of Mexico finds there a national cemetery owned by the United States and cared for by an American citizen. Our flag still floats over our dead, but when the treaty with Mexico was signed, American authority withdrew to the Rio Grande, 
and I venture the opinion that during the last 50 years, the people of Mexico have made more progress under the stimulus of independence and self-government than they would have made under a carpetbag government held in place by bayonets. The United States and Mexico, friendly republics, are each stronger and happier than they would have been had the former been cursed and the latter crushed by an imperialistic policy disguised as benevolent assimilation. Can we not govern colonies, we are asked? The question is not what we can do, but what we ought to do. This nation can do whatever it desires to do, but it must accept responsibility for what it does. If the Constitution stands in the way, the people can amend the Constitution. I repeat, the nation can do whatever it desires to do, but it cannot avoid the natural and legitimate results of its own conduct. The young man, upon reaching his majority, can do what he pleases. He can disregard the teachings of his parents. He can trample upon all that he has been taught to consider sacred. He can disobey the laws of the state, the laws of society, and the laws of God. He can stamp failure upon his life and make his very existence a curse to his fellow men, and he can bring his father and mother in sorrow to the grave. But he cannot annul the sentence, the wages of sin is death. And so with this nation. It is of age, and it can do what it pleases. It can spurn the traditions of the past. It can repudiate the principles upon which the nation rests. It can employ force instead of reason. It can substitute might for right. It can conquer weaker people. It can exploit their lands, appropriate their property, and kill their people. But it cannot repeal the moral law or escape the punishment decreed for the violation of human rights. Would we tread in the paths of tyranny, nor reckon the tyrant's cost? Who taketh another's liberty? His freedom is also lost. Would we win as the strong have ever won, make ready to pay the debt? For the God who reigned over Babylon is the God who is reigning yet. Some argue that American rule in the Philippine Islands will result in the better education of the Filipinos. Be not deceived. If we expect to maintain a colonial policy, we shall not find it to our advantage to educate the people. The educated Filipinos are now in revolt against us, and the most ignorant ones have made the least resistance to our domination. If we are to govern them without their consent and give them no voice in determining the taxes which they must pay, we dare not educate them, lest they learn to read the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States and mock us for our inconsistency. The principal arguments, however, advanced by those who enter upon a defense of imperialism are, first, that we must improve the present opportunity to become a world power and enter into international politics. Second, that our commercial interests in the Philippine Islands and in the Orient make it necessary for us to hold the islands permanently. Third, that the spread of the Christian religion will be facilitated by a colonial policy. Fourth, that there is no honorable retreat from the position which the nation has taken. The first argument is addressed to the nation's pride and the second to the nation's pocketbook. The third is intended for the church member and the fourth for the partisan. It is a sufficient answer for the first argument to say that for more than a century, this nation has been the world power. For ten decades, it has been the most potent influence in the world. Not only has it been a world power, but it has done more to affect the politics of the human race than all the other nations of the world combined. 
Because our Declaration of Independence was promulgated, others have been promulgated. Because the Patriots of 1776 fought for liberty, others have fought for it. Because our Constitution was adopted, other Constitutions have been adopted. The growth of the principle of self-government planted on American soil has been the overshadowing political fact of the 19th century. It has made this nation conspicuous among the nations and given it a place in history such as no other nation has ever enjoyed. Nothing has been able to check the onward march of this idea. I am not willing that this nation shall cast aside the omnipotent weapon of truth to seize again the weapons of physical warfare. I would not exchange the glory of this republic for the glory of all the empires that have risen and fallen since time began. The permanent chairman of the last Republican National Convention presented the pecuniary argument in all its baldness when he said, We make no hypocritical pretense of being interested in the Philippines solely on account of others. While we regard the welfare of these people as a sacred trust, we regard the welfare of the American people first. We see our duty to ourselves as well as to others. We believe in trade expansion by every legitimate means within the province of government and constitution. We mean to stimulate the expansion of our trade and open new markets. We'll continue reading from this speech transcript after a quick break. Now, back to where we left off. This is the commercial argument. It is based upon the theory that war can be rightly waged for pecuniary advantage and that it is profitable to purchase trade by force and violence. Franklin denied both of these propositions. When Lord Howe asserted that the acts of Parliament which brought on the revolution were necessary to prevent American trade from passing into foreign channels, Franklin replied, to me, it seems that neither the obtaining nor retaining of any trade, howsoever valuable, is an object for which men may justly spill each other's blood, that the true and sure means of extending and securing commerce are the goodness and cheapness of commodities, and that the profits of no trade can ever be equal to the expense of compelling it and holding it by fleets and armies. I consider this war against us, therefore, as both unjust and unwise. I place the philosophy of Franklin against the sordid doctrine of those who would put a price upon the life of an American soldier and justify a war of conquest upon the ground that it will pay. The Democratic Party is in favor of the expansion of trade. It would extend our trade by every legitimate and peaceful means, but it is not willing to make merchandise of human blood. But a war of conquest is as unwise as it is unrighteous. A harbor and coaling station in the Philippines would answer every trade and military necessity, and such a concession could have been secured at any time without difficulty. It is not necessary to own people in order to trade with them. We carry on trade today with every part of the world, and our commerce has expanded more rapidly than the commerce of any European empire. We do not own Japan or China, but we trade with their people. We have not absorbed the republics of Central and South America, but we trade with them. It has not been necessary to have any political connections with Canada or the nations of Europe in order to trade with them. Trade cannot be permanently profitable unless it is voluntary. 
When trade is secured by force, the cost of securing it and retaining it must be taken out of the profits, and the profits are never large enough to cover the expense. Such a system would never be defended, but for the fact that the expense is borne by all the people, while the profits are enjoyed by a few. Imperialism would be profitable to the army contractors. It would be profitable to the ship owners, who would carry live soldiers to the Philippines and bring dead soldiers back. It would be profitable to those who would seize upon the franchises. And it would be profitable to the officials whose salaries would be fixed here and paid over there. But to the farmer, to the laboring man, and to the vast majority of those engaged in other occupations, it would bring expenditure without return and risk without reward. Farmers and laboring men have, as a rule, small incomes, and under systems which place the tax upon consumption, pay more than their fair share of the expenses of government. Thus, the very people who receive least benefit from imperialism will be injured most by the military burdens which accompany it. In addition to the evils which he and the farmer share in common, the laboring man will be the first to suffer if Oriental subjects work in the United States, the first to suffer if American capital leaves our shores to employ Oriental labor in the Philippines to supply the trade of China and Japan, the first to suffer from the violence which the military spirit arouses, and the first to suffer when the methods of imperialism are applied to our own government. It is not strange, therefore, that the labor organizations have been quick to note the approach of these dangers and prompt protest against both militarism and imperialism. The pecuniary argument, though more effective with certain classes, is not likely to be used so often or presented with so much emphasis as the religious argument. What has been termed the gunpowder gospel were urged against the Filipinos only, it would be a sufficient answer to say that a majority of the Filipinos are now members of one branch of the Christian church. But the principle involved is one of much wider application and challenges serious consideration. The religious argument varies in positiveness from a passive belief that Providence delivered the Filipinos into our hands for their good and our glory to the exultation of the minister who said that we ought to thrash the natives, Filipinos, until they understand who we are, and that every bullet sent, every cannon shot, and every flag waved means righteousness. We cannot approve of this doctrine in one place unless we are willing to apply it everywhere. If there is poison in the blood of the hand, it will ultimately reach the heart. It is equally true that forcible Christianity if planted under the American flag in the faraway Orient, will sooner or later be transplanted upon American soil. If true Christianity consists in carrying out our daily lives the teachings of Christ, who will say that we are commanded to civilize with dynamite and proselyte with the sword? He who would declare the divine will must prove his authority either by holy writ or by evidence of a special dispensation. The command, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, has no Gatling gun attachment. When Jesus visited a village of Samaria and the people refused to receive him, some of the disciples suggested that fire should be called down from heaven to avenge the insult. But the master rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives but to save them. Suppose he had said, we will thrash them until they understand who we are. How different would have been the history of Christianity? Compare, if you will, the swaggering, bullying, 
brittle doctrine of imperialism with the golden rule and the commandment, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love, not force, was the weapon of the Nazarene. Sacrifice for others, not the exploitation of them, was his method of reaching the human heart. A missionary recently told me that the stars and stripes once saved his life because his assailant recognized our flag as a flag that had no blood upon it. Let it be known that our missionaries are seeking souls instead of sovereignty. Let it be known that instead of being the advance guard of conquering armies, they are going forth to help and uplift, having their loins girt about with truth and their feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, wearing the breastplate of righteousness and carrying the sword of the Spirit. Let it be known that they are the citizens of a nation which respects the rights of the citizens of other nations as carefully as it protects the rights of its own citizens, and the welcome given to our missionaries will be more cordial than the welcome extended to the missionaries of any other nation. The argument made by some that it was unfortunate for the nation that it had anything to do with the Philippine Islands, but that the naval victory at Manila made the permanent acquisition of those islands necessary, is also unsound. We won a naval victory at Santiago, but that did not compel us to hold Cuba the shedding of American blood in the Philippine Islands does not make it imperative that we should retain possession forever. American blood was shed at San Juan Hill and El Caney, and yet the President has promised the Cubans independence. The fact that the American flag floats over Manila does not compel us to exercise perpetual sovereignty over the islands. That flag waves over Havana today but the President has promised to haul it down when the flag of the Cuban Republic is ready to rise in its place. Better a thousand times that our flag in the Orient give way to a flag representing the idea of self-government than that the flag of this Republic should become the flag of an empire. There is an easy, honest, honorable solution of the Philippine question. It is set forth in the democratic platform and it is submitted with confidence to the American people. This plan I unreservedly endorse. If elected, I will convene Congress in extraordinary session as soon as I am inaugurated and recommend an immediate declaration of the nation's purpose. First, to establish a stable form of government in the Philippine Islands, just as we are now establishing a stable form of government in Cuba. Second, to give independence to the Filipinos, just as we have promised to give independence to the Cubans. Third, to protect the Filipinos from outside interference while they work out their destiny, just as we have protected the republics of Central and South America and are, by the Monroe Doctrine, pledged to protect Cuba. A European protectorate often results in the plundering of the ward by the Guardian. An American protectorate gives to the nation protected the advantage of our strength without making it the victim of our greed. For three quarters of a century, the Monroe Doctrine has been a shield to neighboring republics, and yet it has imposed no pecuniary burden upon us. After the Filipinos had aided us in the war against Spain, we could not honorably turn them over to their former masters. We could not leave them to be the victims of the ambitious designs of European nations. And since we do not desire to make them a part of us or to hold them as subjects, we propose the only alternative namely, to give them independence and guard them against molestation from without. When our opponents are unable to defend their position by argument, they fall back upon the assertion that it is destiny and insist that we must submit to it.
no matter how much it violates our moral precepts and our principles of government. This is a complacent philosophy. It obliterates the distinction between right and wrong and makes individuals and nations the helpless victims of circumstance. Destiny is the subterfuge of the invertebrae, who, lacking the courage to oppose error, seeks some plausible excuse for supporting it. Washington said that the destiny of the Republican form of government was deeply, if not finally, staked on the experiment entrusted to the American people. How different Washington's definition of destiny from the Republican definition. The Republicans say that this nation is in the hands of destiny. Washington believed that not only the destiny of our own nation, but the destiny of the Republican form of government throughout the world was entrusted to American hands. Washington was right. The destiny of this republic is in the hands of its own people, and upon the success of the experiment here rests the hope of humanity. No exterior force can disturb this republic, and no foreign influence should be permitted to change its course. What the future has in store for this nation, no one has authority to declare, but each individual has his own idea of the nation's mission, and he owes it to his country, as well as to himself, to contribute as best he may to the fulfillment of that mission. Mr. Chairman and gentlemen of the committee, I can never fully discharge the debt of gratitude which I owe to my countrymen for the honors which they have so generously bestowed upon me. But, sirs, whether it be my lot to occupy the high office for which the convention has named me, or to spend the remainder of my days in private life, it shall be my constant ambition and my controlling purpose to aid in realizing the high ideals of those whose wisdom and courage and sacrifices brought the Republic into existence. I can conceive of a national destiny surpassing the glories of the present and the past, a destiny which meets the responsibilities of today and measures up to the possibilities of the future. Behold a Republic resting securely upon the foundation stones quarried by revolutionary patriots from the mountain of eternal truth, a Republic applying in practice and proclaiming to the world the self-evident propositions that all men are created equal, that they are endowed with inalienable rights, that governments are instituted among men to secure these rights, and that governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. Behold, a republic in which civil and religious liberty stimulates to earnest endeavor, and in which the law restrains every hand uplifted for a neighbor's injury, a republic in which Every citizen is a sovereign, but in which no one cares to wear a crown. Behold, a republic standing erect, while empires all around are bowed beneath the weight of their own armaments. A republic whose flag is loved, while other flags are only feared. Behold, a republic increasing in population, in wealth, in strength, and in influence, solving the problems of civilization, and hastening the coming of a universal brotherhood a republic which shakes thrones and dissolves aristocracies by its silent example and gives light and inspiration to those who sit in darkness. Behold a republic gradually but surely becoming the supreme moral factor in the world's progress and the accepted arbiter of the world's disputes, a republic whose history, like the path of the just, is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day.
This podcast and our other podcast are productions of Little Red Hen Industries. The supporting cast who helps me bake the bread includes Techno King, John C. Brandy, Fact Checker, Abraham Lincoln, French Consultant, Virginia Mitchell, Media Expert, Favor, Abbasi E.K., Psychologist, William James, Rabbit Hole Advisor, Dr. Mark Perrot, Sound Designer, Goodly Amo, Marconi, Spanish Consultant, Cameron J.K. Brandy, Videographer, Alfred Hitchcock, Audio Props, Les Paul, Inspiration, Napoleon Hill and Earl Nightingale. We also have websites, and you can subscribe to both podcasts and get ebooks and other great stuff. You can send us a video, audio, or text message, but of course, you'll have to head to the show notes, either on your phone or on the web, to actually get links and stuff. And those clickable links are in the show notes. And before we forget, the artificial intelligence or AI voices you hear in our work come from the online tone generator, linked in the show notes. Finally, you can find us on Podmatch and Listen Notes, where we consider guests and guesting on other pods. And really finally, the music for our pods comes from Cute by Ben Sound, and from Piano Background by Nick Simon Adams. The sound effects credits go to Jackson Academy Ashmore, Canoe CG, Dr. Jekyll, Joe Payne, Everything Sounds, MK Play Moss Stories, ERH, and Just Good Inc. Yes, that's his name. All on freesound.org. Paul.